All right. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now then, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now as Jesus was walking by the sea of of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they came, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. Jesus was going through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all of Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is Jesus beginning his public ministry. This is a text describing the details, a narrative giving us the details of someone, not just anyone, but the king himself entering in to his public ministry. And I think about that, and I look at Jesus' beginning to his public ministry, I would guess it would probably be hard for anyone, it's certainly hard for me, not to reflect back on, I guess, the time when you would say, I began my public ministry. As a matter of fact, August of last year, August 2018, was exactly 20 years since Southside Baptist Church in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, ordained me into the gospel ministry. And so I am in year 21. I must tell you, however, that my beginning of my ministry, even as glorious of a time as I would tell you my ordination service was, was nothing like Jesus's that we read about here. I, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I, I didn't have a mom and dad that spoke the name of Christ, that prayed in our home, that even took us to church on a regular basis. I, I did have relatives that... That, uh, that were believers, that professed to know Christ, and occasionally we would go to church, but it just wasn't a regular part of our life. I was actually saved in my grandparents' house when I was 12 years old. I came to understand my, my problem of sin, my need for the Savior. I confessed and professed Jesus as my Lord, and He redeemed me, but there was no discipleship that took place in my life. I wasn't e even in a church after that time until I was about 16 years old. And then I began going to church without either of my parents taking me. I just began to go on a Wednesday night youth group on my own. And from that experience, I began to go on a Sunday morning and then Sunday night to Southside Baptist Church. And I, be I began to listen to this man preach the gospel and proclaim the Bible by the name of Dr. J.R. DeBusk. 
who now happens to be my father-in-law. At the time, I was not dating his daughter, but I began to listen to him. And very quickly, after I started going on a Sunday morning and Sunday night, I, I began to understand that, that I, I had been baptized before, but I was actually baptized. It's a long story, but before I had professed Christ as my Savior. So it wasn't baptism, right? It wasn't believer baptism. So I knew that I needed to make that commitment public. So when I was 16 years old in Southside Baptist Church, I did that. And J.R. began to take a personal interest in me. And almost immediately after that, I began to feel the call on my heart to full-time vocational ministry. And so I found myself sitting in J.R.'s office, and he began to work with me. He began to mentor me. And one of the first things that he did, even before I was ordained, he began to work with me on Sunday nights to prepare a sermon, to go through sermon prep, the sermon prep process. And I, I wonder if many young men or women, but specifically young men that feel called to pastor the pastor today, have the same privilege that I had to have a pastor sit with them and mentor them and begin to go through the process of what it means to be a minister, what it means to preach, and what that looks like. I will forever be grateful for that. So he helped me prepare my first sermon on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And he said, I'm going to give you the chance to preach it on a Wednesday night. So the first Wednesday night, I stood up to ever proclaim the word of the Lord. There were about 30 people there, and in a moment you'll understand why. They ministered to me a whole lot more than any way I did or could have ministered to them because they put up with what could only be described as a feeble attempt at a sermon. Now, you know me very well, so you're not going to believe this, but this is the honest-to-goodness truth. That first sermon on that Wednesday night from those 10 verses was seven and a half minutes long. And I preached the text twice. I got through it, been preaching about three, four minutes. I thought that's not long enough. Let's just go through it again. Seven and a half minutes is all I had. So I would say there's a whole lot more hesitation in that sermon than power. And uh, let me just say no one responded outwardly that time. You could say that in my public ministry, I got off to an inauspicious start. But I've had the privilege now of talking to many a young man both at the seminary that I teach at now and otherwise that have been called to ministry and that have started their ministry, started their preaching ministry. And my experience is not uncommon. It's not unlike what most people describe. I would say 50% of the conversations that I've had is something very similar to what I just described to you. But there's one person that we know of for certain that did not begin their ministry that way. No, it was began in... The gathering of large crowds, preaching with power and conviction, and doing some things that only can be done in the power and by the hand of the Lord. By this, we're obviously talking about Jesus, the one that's up to this point in Matthew's gospel been revealed to us as the long-awaited king comes. Up to this point, we've been looking, as a matter of fact, the last several weeks, we looked at the preparation. Happened through his baptism, happened through the preaching of John the Baptist, the preparation for the king's public ministry. And here we finally arrive at the actual beginning, the actual process of the king's public ministry. It's what I call in this passage of Scripture the dawning, you'll see why in a moment, the dawning of a great light. I want us to look today at Jesus's ministry starting, his publicly ministry starting, and I want us to do so in three parts, three scenes, if I can call it that this morning, and I think we'll see as we walk through. I want us to arrive at a conclusion, but I think throughout we will see a common theme hinted at 
along the way. First of all, in verses 12 through 17 that I'm going to read for you again in just a moment, we see what I would call the place for his ministry. Verse 12, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Hold your spot with me there for just a moment. When we look at this passage of Scripture, perhaps the context leads us to believe that the primary reason why Jesus withdrew into Galilee and not in southern Judea where Jerusalem was, was because of fear. John the Baptist's ministry had just ended with his death, and so Jesus doesn't want to face the same end, and so therefore he withdraws into Galilee. I think we're going to see through this text that's, that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, the person that had John the Baptist beheaded, Herod Antipas, wasn't even the ruler of Jerusalem at this time anyway. His brother Archelaus was. So that's not the reason why he did this. Also, in context sometimes, we need to understand that Matthew's not necessarily trying to write things in strict, strict chronology. In other words, what we read at the end of Matthew chapter 4, verse 11 didn't necessarily happen the day before what we read in verse 12. Matthew is showing us a theme. I, I think we also have to hold this in balance with what we read in other gospel accounts. Namely, the gospel of Mark chapter 1 verse 14. When the time had come, when the fullness of time had come. There's an element in which we understand that Jesus' ministry always hangs in the balance of what the Lord is up to and the time coming. Yet, we understand that also balances itself with there are some things that are yet to come. So we ask the question, why did Jesus, when Jerusalem is the capital of the religious and political world of the Jews, why does Jesus go north to Galilee to begin his public ministry? I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think there's some practical reasons why, and there's an ultimate theological reason why. Let's just talk about Galilee for a moment. One of the things that you need to know about Galilee is the population density of the time is to this day still... Even, even like it was then, much more heavily concentrated than even South Israel. As a matter of fact, the, the square miles of Galilee, the, the, the parameters of Galilee are quite small when you think about it. As a matter of fact, it's only about 25 miles wide, the whole Providence, 25 miles wide and 50 miles long. Now compare that to the Sea of Galilee itself which in its widest place is 8 miles wide, and its longest place is 13 miles wide. So what that means is the Sea of Galilee itself makes up roughly a third of the square miles of the whole providence, the whole province of, Gal of, of Galilee. The other thing that you need to understand is most of the cities, most of the towns then and now, are squished right around the shores of that Sea of Galilee. In the time of Jesus, there were about 204 villages in that 25 by 50 mile location. None of the villages had less, less population than 15,000. Squished in that little bitty small area 
that's tinier than our state of Rhode Island. The population in Jesus' time was over 3 million. So you want to have an impact from a population standpoint, that's where you went. I think there's another reason. Major Roman roads, major roads in the area ran right through, still run right through Galilee. Furthermore, there was a mixed population. Notice the designation. Galilee of the Gentiles. Understand that that was a term in that day and time that was somewhat mockery. What it alludes to is the three tribes that of Israel, the three of the twelve tribes of Israel that were given the land in Galilee, and by that we mean Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, actually never completely drove out the Canaanites. And so this had never been a complete Jewish area. Most people believe it in this day and time. As a matter of fact, the population was about 50% Gentile. Does that say something about the heart of God and the mission of Jesus? Does that say something about the focus of the Gospel of Matthew and all of the Gospel? I think it does. It made sense. If Jesus wants to impact and show this message of the good news that God has always intended for more than just the Jews to those that aren't Jews, well, in some ways, it's not Jerusalem that you go to. It's Galilee. And stay in the general area. Beyond that, in some ways, it's, far, it's close enough but yet far enough away from Jerusalem, the political and religious center of the Jews, of Judaism. Now, why is that significant? Well, bear with me for a moment. You understand, from the standpoint of a Jewish religious mind, Jesus was a religious liberal. You understand that, right? compared to how they thought strictly of the law and what that meant and what it meant to be right with God. And by the way, the concept of the incarnation and God being in the flesh, which is what Jesus taught, that is absolute heresy to Jews. Why do you think it was that Jesus was arrested in Jerusalem and there crucified? The door was to some, somewhat to extent slammed to what Jesus was going to teach. So it made a lot of sense practically for Jesus' ministry to begin in Galilee. And Oh, by the way, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is not that far from the Sea of Galilee. I've seen myself the, 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 the road in the valley, the mountain road that Jesus literally would have had to walk through to get to Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee. It's not that far from where he grew up. There's practical reasons why the Savior, why Jesus would begin his public ministry, his three-year ministry in Galilee, but even more importantly than that, and this is where I think the significance must be emphasized, there's a theological reason that Matthew gives us. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Jesus didn't go to Galilee because he was afraid of suffering the same fate that John the Baptist did. I think some of the practical reasons make a difference, but that's ultimately not why Jesus started his public ministry in Galilee. Ultimately, it's because the prophet from long ago, and Jesus' understanding of the prophet from long ago, Isaiah, fulfills prophecy by him beginning his ministry in this land. Listen, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness, get this, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. 
This particular prophecy that is quoted here is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But in the context, there's some other significant things that were going on. You have to understand the beginning of Isaiah 8, out of which this prophecy comes, was when King Ahaz had actually set up idolatry. The worship of the god Moloch just outside of the eastern gate of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives. Okay, that's what's going on in the context of, of Jerusalem and what's going on in Isaiah as this great prophecy of hope is about to come. Here's something else you need to understand. In, in the day of Jesus, when the Galileans would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, the path that they would take would be through this very path through the very location that Ahaz had set up this worship of Moloch. They would come right down through the Mount of Olives. As a matter of fact, just outside the city, on the eastern gate, is where the Galileans would camp when they made their pilgrimage to the city. And it was there so long ago that King Ahaz had set up this idolatrous behavior from the, for the people of God. And so... At the end of Isaiah 8, it's a very dark time. As a matter of fact, we don't have time to look, but if you look at Isaiah 8, verse 19 and following, it was a very dark time for Israel. Here's something else you have to know. Do you know that even after this, when God relented and Israel began to come back from exile, do you know the southern kingdom, by and large, did come back from exile? But you know, in some ways, the northern part of the kingdom never really did. And it's in that context that Isaiah gives this prophecy. Verse nine, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Do you know what else comes in chapter 9, verse 6? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Same context that Jesus, that Matthew is quoting, that relates to Jesus beginning his ministry in Galilee. Please don't miss what I'm about to say. There is something in the heart of God. There is something about when the good news, when the gospel of Jesus Christ begins and the king's public ministry begins. Don't miss this. Where he begins his ministry amongst those, both literally and metaphorically, that are the farthest away from the kingdom. That are the farthest away from the Father himself. And that is not by accident. And for us, for Adam Hughes, that is great news. Now watch this. In some ways, if you understand the interpretation and application of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 to Jesus' ministry, this is essentially what God is saying. God finds the greatest pleasure in bringing the news of the greatest salvation and redemption to those that are in the greatest judgment and the farthest away from me. I, I believe there might be a lot of reasons why Jesus began His ministry in Galilee, but I believe that is primary. It's God's heart to people that are far from them. Far from Him geographically, far from Him spiritually. And that's what God does. I think it's also interesting to just look at verse 17 for a moment and ask, so what was Jesus' message? What, what was his, 
his subject of his sermon when he began his preaching ministry. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I, I don't have time to look at this in great detail, but notice that it's very consistent with the same message that John the Baptist was preaching at the beginning of Matthew chapter 3. It's very prophetic. God is doing something. The kingdom of heaven is near as at hand because the king now is here. And it's a tremendous message of hope, but the message is really a call for repentance. And based on what you do with that message, both in John's, God, John's ministry and in Jesus' ministry, there's either judgment or there's hope. And for the Galilee of the Gentiles, Jesus is calling them to repentance and a message and a time of hope. The emphasis is on God bringing the dawn, not just the dawning of a great, great light, but the dawn of the Messiah to those, at least in this time and this place, that were the furthest from Him. Don't miss, don't miss that. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we look at this first section, we understand when the king began his ministry, he sent the greatest light to those in the greatest darkness. That's not all we see in this passage of Scripture. There's a second scene. It's not just a place for his ministry, but it's the partners in his ministry. Beginning in verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. There, there are two dual running themes early on in the Gospel of Matthew. And I've harped on one of them over and over and over again. But there are two sides of the same coin. One of them is, is the king. The long-awaited king is here. The one that was promised, the one that you've been waited on, waiting on is here. And even what we read right before this with him beginning his ministry in Galilee, the king's here. And if the king's here, then in a very real sense, so is the kingdom. Kind of goes back to what we just said in the fullness of time, when the time had been fulfilled, but yet there's also an anticipation that the time has not yet completely come. That's not just true for the king. That's also true for his followers. The kingdom is here because the king's here. So for those of us who, who have the king ruling in our hearts now, we are living in the kingdom now, but not fully. Which leads to the second emphasis that Ma Matthew makes at the first part of his gospel. It's not just the king and kingdom being present, but it's also this concept of discipleship. Or can I say kingdom citizenship? How do we, how are we called to live in the kingdom since the king is here? Should it surprise us then that Matthew bringing those two themes together, here beginning in verse 12 through verse 17, that Matthew here shows Jesus, the king, when he begins his public ministry, calling his first disciples. Those that would partner with him in the kingdom. That's not by accident. Here are those that are going to live in the kingdom and work for the kingdom now. And so he shows the calling of them as he begins his public ministry. Let's talk about these because he talks, calls two sets of brothers. And again, there's something interesting. There's a theme that emerges. First of all, we see the calling of Simon or Peter and his brother Andrew. Notice that they have an occupation. By the way, the 
village that they lived in, I was at. It's Capernaum, and it's right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Furthermore, this is just kind of an aside. Day two in Israel, we literally took a boat ride from Tiberias to, to just about the area where Capernaum is, although we didn't go into Capernaum that day. We went the next day on the Sea of Galilee. And we got off at one of these small villages, one of these small resorts that's there, and they have a museum where they have unearthed, it's the only one like it in existence that they know about, they've unearthed and preserved a fishing boat that they have dated to the time of Jesus that you can go in and see. Don't know that it's Peter, they said it this way, we don't know that it's Peter's fishing boat, but we don't know it's not. But we definitely know it was in the same area, and it's the same date as what we read about in this story. And that's the occupation that both sets of brothers had. But I want you to notice this for just a moment. We know for fact from John's Gospel that Peter and Andrew had actually already met Jesus before he calls them. But there's an emphasis here in the calling of Peter and Andrew on making fishermen who held that as their occupation as fishers of men who will now work for and in the kingdom. Don't miss that play on words. That's not by accident. Jesus is, is the master teacher, like I said, unlike me, seven and a half minutes. Jesus knew right how to paint a picture and to use what was in the world, to use object lessons that were there to connect directly to the people that he was talking to. And so Jesus looks at them. He sees them in their occupation. He sees what they know, and he says, come follow me, and I'll make you now to fish for men. That would have been profound and very interesting to two brothers that had spent their entire adult career living in a fishing village, making their wages by fishing for fish on the Sea of Galilee. Notice also this emphasis with these brothers, their response. There's an emphasis on immediately. Immediately. They left their nets. They followed him immediately. There's a second set of brothers, though, that he calls also. It's not just Simon and Andrew, but it's also James and John. We, unlike Peter and Andrew, have no idea. There's no emphasis anywhere else where they had met him or seen him or known him. They could have, other than this day. This might have been the first time that he ever saw them, that they ever spoke with him, and he calls them. Notice, unlike with Simon and Peter, where the emphasis on being being made fishers of men, the emphasis here is more on familiar relationships and leaving those familiar relationships. Their calling is set in the context of them working with their father and leaving their father. Now, I don't think that means that they never spoke with him again or didn't have a relationship, but it's the idea of this which is comfortable with me, to me, this which I know, this which I've been working in, the relationships that make me comfortable, leaving those and instead following this one that perhaps I've never met before today. I don't want to. I don't want to allegorize that, allegorize that, or make too many applications. But I do think there is some significance there. Later in Matthew's gospel, in chapter eight, and then in chapter nineteen, when Jesus is teaching on discipleship, and those say, "I'll follow you," and then Jesus gives them a word back over and over and over again. Jesus continues to emphasize this concept of leaving the familiar and the familiar. Not just what we're familiar with, but also those that we are closest to, to follow him. 
I don't think that means that you can't have family relationships if you follow Jesus, but I do think that that means that when Jesus saves you, all of a sudden the most important relationships in your life are no, no longer those necessarily that are by blood. Jesus takes the place of all of those things. Notice again, though, with James and John, the emphasis on immediately. Both respond immediately. Now here's the question we ask, isn't it? If we think about those that are far from Jesus, here's, here's what we must ask. You understand Jesus is in fact the king and the son of the Lord, but he's playing the role here of a rabbi who's calling disciples. Now think about this for a moment in the context of Israel. Who would a rabbi normally call to be with him? Where would he go to find those that would be his followers and disciples? I'm going to give you a hint, not Capernaum. He would go to Jerusalem more than likely. And there was an aristocracy there, if I could say it that way, that was made up of priests and Pharisees and scribes. And to some extent, it would be in that context that a rabbi, at least one in his right mind, would find followers. So you have to understand that this calling, this description of this calling and who he calls, no one but Jesus in the right mind would call those out of this group to be their disciples, to work with them and carry on their ministry. There, there is no reputation or respect in this. Say it another way. No one would call common fishermen to be their followers and no one would trust religious things to be put in the hands of men like this. So Jesus, even in his calling of who would work with him, who would serve and be in the kingdom with him, doesn't follow the status quo. As a matter of fact, he calls those that are far from the kingdom. Here we can say, maybe economically, but certainly intellectually, these are those that are far from the kingdom. And yet it's these that Jesus calls to be with him and to work with him. Don't miss that again, that even in the Messiah calling those in his ministry, his public ministry beginning, doesn't call those who were of reputation. But he calls those who are far. When the king began his ministry, he called the least likely to be used the mightiest. Didn't he? We don't just see the place for his ministry, and we don't just see the partners in his ministry, but finally in verses 23 and 25, 23 to 25, we see the practice of his ministry. Listen, Jesus was going through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases, pains, demoniac, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea from beyond the Jordan. Very quickly, let me just point out two things to you here. Notice the content that he's practicing in his ministry. Jesus going through all of Galilee, he's teaching in their synagogues. I think perhaps we're led to ask the question, what in the world does that mean? Well, outside of Jerusalem where the temple was, obviously in Jewish territory there would be synagogues. Most towns would have synagogues in them. As a matter of fact, again, 
as I was in Israel and, and, and we were in Galilee, we were able to go into some of these synagogues. Some of them were later additions that had been built or churches that had been built on top of the synagogues. But in a one particular town by the name of Chorazim, you can actually go into a first century synagogue that was there when Jesus was there. Now, there's no record in any of the Gospels that Jesus was ever in Chorazim, but later in Matthew's Gospel, he does curse it for their unbelief, so him or somebody was there. But in this particular synagogue, what's interesting is they would have heard teachers, they would have heard people that could have taught and brought application to the Jewish community. If there was a well-known, if there was somebody that had a word, somebody that was a rabbi, and they walked into the town, they would have been welcome to come into the synagogue and teach. Not unlike what Paul did when he would travel to places, he would find the synagogue first and he would do that because in the synagogue, there usually, and in this one in Chorazim, there's the seat of Moses where some would, some would sit to, to judge, if you will, and then some would un unroll a scroll and begin to teach. And so what does it mean that Jesus is teaching in all of their synagogues in the region of Galilee? It means that he went in and he would begin to teach what they knew, the word that they knew, and he would show them its ultimate fulfillment and what God was beginning to do about bringing about, I think this is emphasized here in what we see next, bringing about his promise, the fulfillment of his redemption coming, the kingdom of the God coming, and proclaiming, that's what we see next, the gospel of the kingdom. I think those two things are intended to be understood separately. It's not that Jesus was teaching and then proclaiming. Jesus was teaching the word in the synagogue and as a result of that or as a part of that he was proclaiming the fulfillment of the good news of the redemption of God and the gospel of the kingdom. Then notice it also says that he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Let me just say this very quickly and we do need to move on. I think two questions we ask here are what, what was the purpose? Why was he healing all of the diseases and I think one answer to that question is because Jesus does care about people physically but I think you can't understand Jesus's ministry of healing without understanding what the disciples themselves prayed after Jesus's ascension in Acts chapter 4 in the New Testament it's not like there's just this signs and wonders ministry that stands on its own but you understand that the signs and wonders ministry of the New Testament were always in conjunction with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ because you've heard me say it before, Jesus would not sacrifice the temporal for the eternal. He would not place the emphasis on something that is now for something that is greater. And even what the disciples prayed in Matthew, excuse me, in Acts chapter 4 was, God, give us boldness to preach the gospel while you extend your hand to show signs and wonders and miracles. It's the idea before the canon is closed, how is the word of God, how, how is it validated? Jesus' healing ministry was because he cared, but it was also a validation of the gospel that he preached and who he said he was. I think we also have to understand that Matthew is very clearly indicating that all the hard cases were coming to him. All the hard diseases, all the ones that no one wanted to touch, they were coming to him. And no case was too hard. No case was too, too big. He was able to handle all of those because of who he was. But then notice where the people were coming from. And I'm going to do this very quickly. Did you catch it? News spread through all of Syria. They brought all those who were ill. All these, this list of problems. Large crowd, verse 25, followed him from Galilee, which is where he is. The Decapolis, 
which is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, which was a series of ten cities that was made by the followers of Alexander the Great, a very Greek-Gentile area as far as we know. Jerusalem, which we know is due south from Galilee and Judea. And from beyond the Jordan, which is probably a reference to the east side of the Jordan River, common day Jordan. So what is Matthew saying by this? He's saying basically people were coming from every direction but east, but, but west. And extreme west is the Mediterranean Sea, so you can't go west. What's Matthew saying here? People were literally coming in that day and time, and their understanding of the world, they were coming to Jesus from everywhere. That's the point Matthew is making with his description. Every geographical location on the compass, people were coming to Jesus from to be ministered to and hear his teaching and preaching. What's significant about that, right? It's, again, look, it's, it's, not, it's not those that are the norm, that are highly respected, that are highly regarded. It's those from everywhere, right, that are hurt, that are lowly regarded, that aren't considered primary in society. And they're coming from everywhere. Those that were religiously, spiritually, economically, intellectually far from the kingdom, far from the Lord, Jesus' public ministry reaches out to and ministers to. When the king began his ministry, he delivered the message of redemption to those to whom it appeared to be out of reach. Those that were the farthest away, those that were the least likeliest, those who it seemed like the message of redemption could not extend to. Just make a final statement here and then I'll make some applications. The beginning of Jesus' public ministry shows that the king is the type of king who goes after people and among people especially those who seem to be the farthest away from the kingdom. That might not seem to be great news to you today because we sit in church and we think we are the people that are the closest to the kingdom. But I can tell you for Adam Hughes, when I think about being used in the kingdom and even just being redeemed by the king of the kingdom, that's great news for me. Because I look and I go, I was the least likeliest. I was the most wretched. And yet he extends his hand to me and redeems me. And I, I'm so thankful. It's still the heart of God. It's still the heart of Jesus that I see over and over again that he's still doing this work. One example, and I'll try to be very, very quick with this. You know that last summer I spent 10 days in India teaching in a seminary there those that have been called in India to do ministry in India. You know that is not a place where a lot of Christians reside. As a matter of fact, I had roughly 20 people in my class, and I just began to ask them, tell me the background you come out of. And I don't think there was one person in the class that didn't say, I came out of a Muslim family, I came out of a Hindu family, and oh, by the way, my family is still Muslim or Hindu. The fact that they have been redeemed God is training them to go back into and amongst those people to do ministry shows the continued heart of the Messiah to reach people that are the farthest from the kingdom. But even the story about how that ministry began, it's run by a guy by the name of Abraham Thomas who is himself a native Indian 
that grew up, believe it or not, in a Christian home. And the story of how he in India grew up in a Christian home and how he came to start this ministry is nothing short of a miracle and shows the continued heart of God and the Messiah to go after people that are the farthest from the kingdom. You see, two generations before, there were missionaries that came to India and shared the gospel with Abraham's grandparents and they became believers. And so they continued, they began the, the, the process and raised their family, their children and their children's children, as Christians in their home. So Abraham, in the most unlikely of places, grew up as a believer. Now that's amazing enough, but in the year 2000, Billy Graham did a crusade in India. And Abraham, being one of the few Christians, relatively speaking, in India, worked as a translator for Billy Graham's team 18, 19 years ago. And he met a guy by the name of Pastor Richardson who was there working on Billy Graham's team. He was translating for him. And through this process, Pastor Richardson, who's, by the way, from Louisiana, just asks Abraham, and what, what are you wanting to do? What's your heart? How, how are you going to be involved in ministry? And Abraham said, the Lord has placed on my heart a vision to one day begin a ministry that trains pastors to plant churches amongst Hindus and Muslims to help plant churches and to start orphanages. At that point, he had no money. He had no land. He didn't have the first student or pastor. And today, 18, 19 years later, every part of that vision God has brought about. They have land, they have a campus, they have a school, they plant churches, and they have orphanages. It is amazing how God's heart is still going after and taking the gospel to the people that are the least likely and that are the farthest away from the kingdom. That is the heart of our God. So let me just say this very quickly. Two applications and we'll close. As a believer... I can't be like Jesus if I'm not going after people who are different than me and especially those who are far from the Father. I, I can't say that I have a heart like the Father if my life and ministry is not about going after everybody and especially those who seem to be the farthest away, spiritually or otherwise. Number two, the king still goes after people, especially those who are far away from the kingdom. So let me say this to you this morning, right out of the words of the text. If you are one that finds yourself sitting in the shadow of death, as Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9 tells us, take courage that Jesus still finds joy in seeking you. If you find yourself as one who is sitting in spiritual darkness, find joy that Jesus still finds joy in shining the greatest light of redemption to you. This morning I would say to you, you are the very one that Jesus is seeking. You are the very one that Jesus is looking for. Would you pray with me this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Ultimately, we know that Jesus' ministry didn't end in Matthew chapter 4. No, it, it ultimately culminated on a cross, on a hill called Calvary, just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. But it wasn't like a common 
death on a cross by the hands of the Roman in that day and time. It was an intentional death. It was one that Jesus had come for. Purposely dying on the cross for you, for me, for our sins. In our place, taking the wrath that was rightfully ours so that through repentance and faith in Him, we can have the righteousness that's rightfully His. He put in the tomb three days later, He rose again. And the Apostle Paul tells us why. So that if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What a tremendous promise to us today. I just wonder if there are any of you sitting here that just feel far from the Lord. Maybe you feel far, far from the Lord because you don't have a relationship with Him, but may the day be the day of salvation for you. I'm going to pray and say amen. We're going to begin to sing. You come forward, you grab my hand. I'd love to counsel with you on how to know for certain, how to accept Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're a believer, but at this moment you still feel far from Him. You maybe like one of the fishermen feel like you cannot be used by Him for whatever reason. Jesus finds pleasure in using those that are far from Him. Redemption stories to build His kingdom. Perhaps you just want to come to the altar and you want to lay it before Him and you want to commit some things to Him so that He can use you in the world and context that you live. Whatever it is, we want to give Him this time. This is His invitation. It's not ours. We want to respond in a way that glorifies and honors Him. Lord Jesus, thank You so much. Thank you so much for your life, death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you so much for your ministry. Thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you that you still call people that are far from you to serve you and Father and, and Lord Jesus to know the Father. We pray that right now this would be your invitation. You would have your way. And Father, whatever you do in this invitation, we'll respond in praise of you for it's about you, it's not about us. And it is in Jesus' name that we give you and pray all these things. Amen and amen. Would you stand and respond as we sing?